0: From his humble beginnings in Nebraska, to working his way into a band as a backing vocalist, to fronting the band that eventually became The Tubes, Fee Waybill was born to entertain. But for Fee, being the front man of the band wasn't just about singing the tunes. The Tubes live performances were an extravaganza of bondage, simulated sex, chainsaws, phallic props, smashing televisions, and often partially new dancers and band members. Not only were the tubes pioneers of incorporating theatrics and shock value into their live shows, but they were also a band of brilliant musicians. Their early albums were a fusion of rock and jazz that were comparable to Zappa, and incorporated lyrics that satirized pop culture, politics, religion, and even sexual taboos. They garnered a cult following, but didn't have a major hit on their hands until they connected with producer David Foster in 1981. Together with Steve Lukather, the Tubes scored their first major hit, Talk to You Later. And two years later, topped its success with the even more successful She's a, beauty.
1: She's a Beauty.
0: But as mentioned before, Fee is a man of many talents, and he's here to tell us all about him. Inside MusicCast welcomes Fee Waybill. Hey Fee, thanks for joining us.
2: Hey, it's my pleasure. Hey. I'm doing well. Good, 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 good. Welcome.
0: Hey, you know, when I think about you and the Tubes, there was a, a key moment that changed everything for you, and that being, you know, your drummer, Prairie Prince. You know, he got a scholarship to the San Francisco Art Institute, and he asked you and Roger Steen if you wanted to come along, and uh, that move alone set, you know, in motion the genesis of of the band. And, and tell us about that time period. I mean, you were pretty young. And you weren't really involved in a band at that time, but uh, some, I wasn't. No, yeah.
2: I was actually. Uh, I was actually uh, living up. I had dropped out. I, I had uh, uh, Roger and Prairie and another guy named David were, had a band in Arizona called yeah. the Red White and Blues Band, a trio, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were you know very eclectic and did psychedelic kind of music and. Uh, not very, not not just like a cover band. They were they were writing their own material, and and I was just a friend because I had gone to see them quite a few times, and we were you know the same age, and uh, but I had bailed. I pretty much had bailed out. I decided I you know I was gonna I was gonna drop out, like Timothy yeah. Leary told me to, <laughs> and so I moved. I moved to a, a, uh, I moved to Northern California. I mean Northern Arizona. I'm yeah. sorry. And I started working for a cowboy, really? and uh, really? I I got a job on a cattle ranch <laughs> in a place called Cottonwood, Arizona. Okay, <laughs> and uh, uh, for a cowboy named Dave Perkins, and I was a hippie. I had you know baggy pants and and long hair, and uh, <laughs> but Dave didn't care, and he liked me, and so yeah. I, I was I was a cowboy when they oh, when God. they came up, and I used to live at a ranch. That uh, it was called the Packard Place, and it was uh, an old. It was actually the uh, the, one of the oldest cabins in Arizona. One of the first structures in Arizona. Hmm. Ancient hand hewn logs and adobe. It was mostly adobe. And uh, and I and uh, I and a couple of other friends, these other hippies who had dropped out, we all lived in this ranch. And I would go to work. For Dave and and ride around the range on 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 one of his horses and round up cows for him. You know he wow. was a cattle rancher and yeah. uh, and so and so Roger and Perry and the guys used to come up on the weekends. They would come up because we lived right on a river on the actually on a confluence of two rivers, the, the Verde River and the Sycamore River. Mm-hmm. And there was a great big pond where they met, and we used to go uh, swimming yeah. in the. In the in the in the river, and uh, so we'd have parties on the weekend, and people would come up from Phoenix, and we'd all go skinny dipping in the in the river, and have a barbecue, and sit around, and you know, smoke pot. And, uh, <laughs> oh, those
3: are the days of the country folks.
2: Those folk. were the days. This was, this was like you know, late '60s, and uh, yeah. so they one one weekend they came up, Roger and and Prairie and Dave came up, and they and they told me what was happening, and said. You know, Perry got a scholarship, and we got to go. And Perry, we, we, he can't pass this up. So mm-hmm. the band decided just to move to San Francisco, gotcha. Rogers band, and and. Uh, and they asked me if I wanted to drive the truck. <laughs> basically, I I was pretty much fed up with being a cowboy, and uh, I was getting paid fifty dollars a month.
1: Holy I,
2: that was my pay, fifty dollars a month. And, uh, you know, you can barely live on $50, even, if, even though you're in the middle of nowhere. Right. I had nothing, and yeah. I had no, you know, no future pretty much as a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, and I had long-haired cowboys. It was funny. We They used to take us to, Dave used to take us into town to, to a restaurant or to a bar or something. And all the other cowboys, it was all, at the town, Cottonwood was full of cowboys. There was nothing but cowboys. Right, it, right. The place was surrounded by cattle ranches. <laughs> and so there was nothing but cowboys there. And they would see us, in see me with long hair, sitting there with Dave. And, yeah. boy, they, you know, they wanted to cut my hair so bad that I can't tell you how many times <laughs> they come up to me and said, you don't mind if we just cut a little bit of that off, do you, his partner? There, you got a lot of hair, and my friend over here is bald, and and uh, maybe he could use some. And you know, and Dave would just go, oh, just back off, okay, guys, back off. He's he's my guy; he works for me, and nobody would fuck with Dave because you know he was one of the Perkins. There's his the the per, there's a town called Perkinsville in northern Arizona, okay. and Dave's dad. Uh, was the patriarch of the Perkins family, and he actually drove longhorn cows from Texas all the way to Perkinsville and had a ranch full of longhorns. And so they named the town after him, and he had like five sons, and each of them had a gigantic cattle ranch around the area. So nobody, nobody screwed with Dave. Whatever Dave said, that was it. You know, you don't, you don't mess with Dave Perkins.
1: So I always got a pass
2: on getting my haircut by the Cowboys. But uh, I figured, you know, when when Roger Perry said let's move to San Francisco, I was in. I said, okay, I'll fine. I'll drive the truck. So I drove the truck to San Francisco, and I became their roadie uh, for the Red, White, and, and Blues band. And uh, we all lived in this little dinky house in San Francisco, and. I think five of us lived in a two-bedroom house. Yeah. I didn't I didn't have a bedroom. I lived in the attic. I put boards on the floor and put a sleeping bag in the attic, and that was my room. <laughs> and, uh,
3: so your cowboy days were over. That's how
2: started. That's how I, you know, and, and <laughs> eventually uh, another band from Arizona, uh, Bill Spooner's band, the called The Beans, yeah. mm-hmm. they moved up to San Francisco because we told them how great it was. Yeah. And, you know, Phoenix was dump. <laughs> and... uh They moved up, and then, uh, and then after a year, a couple of years went by, and uh, and Roger and Prairie got sick and tired of their bass player, who was pretty much owned on hash most of the time
1: and, uh,
2: even, and couldn't really make it to rehearsal and rehearsal was in the garage which was where he lived in the corner of the garage and he couldn't and make so, it to the rehearsal he couldn't make it and so finally they fired him they tried to find another bass player and they couldn't find anybody that they thought was good enough and, uh, and so they decided to join Bill's band and uh, Bill, Bill had a quartet uh, guitar, drums, bass, keyboards and so Roger and Prairie joined them, and so there was two lead guitars and two drummers, and I was kind of left holding the bag there because Bill already had four roadies. And uh, so I said, you know, I'm a pretty good singer because I sang all through school. You know, I, was, I did musical comedies, and I'd been singing. My mother was a singer, and yeah. I'd been singing since I was a little kid.
1: And, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: and uh, so they said, okay, you can be the background singer. And so I started as a background singer, and uh, and then they would complain all the time, and they said, well, you are you sing too loud. <laughs> you think you're supposed to be a background singer, you're supposed to blend in, you sing too damn loud.
1: <laughs> and
2: uh, so I said, well, why don't you let me sing lead then? And I can, they there won't, won't be a problem with it. And they went, well, okay. And, you know, the guitar players, all they wanted to do was, was you know, play solos. Yeah, exactly. They didn't care about singing, so I became the lead singer, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, we started doing costuming right away. Uh, you know, I started, and the, the funny enough, the first character I ever did was the cowboy guy.
1: And did I, you really? That's, <laughs> right. that's right,
2: yeah. I did cowboy fee, and I yeah. had, you know, I had, <laughs> I took a couple of uh, carpets and made them into white carpets, shag carpet, and I made chaps out of them. That's and, awesome. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I had a, you know, I would wear a white Western shirt, and underneath it, I would put a a bag of stage blood. I'd tape it to my chest. And in the the song that we did was called El Paso by Marty Robbins. Yeah, and yeah. in the song, the guy in the song gets shot. Gets shot, yeah, exactly. So when the guy gets shot, I would slap the blood bag on my chest and <laughs> squirt blood all over. Him. And, oh, that's you great. know, they thought that was just the greatest thing. Of all, <laughs> you know, oh, my God, that's so great. And, you know, and we were we were looking for some kind of edge. You know, because you know there was a million bands in San Francisco. There, were, every five feet, there was a band. Right. And not to mention all the famous, you know, the Grateful Dead and Quicksilver and sure. Starship yeah. and you know all the big time bands and uh, or Star Airplane back then. Right. Uh, and uh, so we were looking for some kind of edge to get our, you know, to get hired back to the dumpy little club that we were playing. And uh, so that's it's just. It just went on for it just got more, it just built, and I did another yeah. character, another <laughs> character, and then we got dancers and we hired a bunch of strippers that we knew from <laughs> bro, from Broadway and San yeah. Francisco to be our dancers, yep. and then we had a guy named Kenny Ortega yep. came, come on board, and he was just a
1: choreographer just
2: that. A, at that at the time he was a choral dancer, he had just come off the road of yeah. Some uh, Jesus Christ superstar or something, uh-huh. and he was a, a background dancer.
1: Right. But so he
2: wanted to choreograph, and so he, we met him, and he said, "Well, let me let me put this all together for you. Let me choreograph for you with the dancers and the costumes and the whole." <laughs> so we said, "Okay," and so then that was it. We were off to the races, and. <laughs>
0: Uh, you know, we we've only asked one question so far, Fee, and you knocked out the next six questions <laughs> on our page. So <laughs> oh,
3: that, that's great. <laughs> hey,
0: but I, but I do want to go back. You mentioned your mom a second ago, and I know that you were born in Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, right, and and right. and I know that there was always music in your house, records playing, and and your mom is a musician, a singer, and and I know that she'd perform standards when with with big bands when they needed a singer when they came to town, right?
2: Right before she was married, uh-huh. she was a, like the local singer for the bands that the the big bands. She 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 uh, Duke Ellington. She actually sang with. And wow! All these big bands would come to town. Yeah, and uh, that was a big deal, you know, in the forties. Yeah. The big bands were, you know, that was the rock and roll of the time. Sure, and, uh, they would come to town, and they would they a lot of them didn't carry a singer, and they would just you know, and they all did the same song. They all did standards, you know, Begin the Beguine and right. you know, whatever. And my mother was like the person that you got to sing for you in Omaha when you went to Omaha and yeah and uh so she was she was a great singer and mm-hmm. uh uh and then you know she fell in love and got married and had kids and my brother and I were both born in in nebraska and uh uh and that was it that was the end of her singing career, uh-huh. you know professionally, but she loved to sing and we always had you know she didn't like you know she didn't like the us sitting sitting in front of television all night long after dinner. So after dinner we we seldom watch T V. We would put on records and you know, we had a record player and we would play she loved Broadway musicals. Right. So we would all, we were always playing some, you know, Funny Girl or or Can Can or Guys and Dolls or West Side Story yep. or some big Broadway musical was always playing. And so she would be singing and i would be singing and you know we all we we only got to watch tv pretty much during the daytime when cuz i we were latchkey kids my both my parents worked yeah so we would come home after school and we'd get to watch tv until mom came home from work and then you know make dinner and then no tv then we would turn on the record player and yeah. uh, so i started you know i had a love for singing from a early early age yeah. and uh, and then when the beatles came out that was you know that that come that was it sure. I flipped out when the Beatles came out I flipped out and that was early I think my I think that was my sophomore year the freshman year of high school I was a jock I because I had played my dad started little league uh-huh. in Scottsdale so I was a baseball player and I played ball you know all the way on through the first freshman year of high school uh-huh. and uh I was I played baseball and football and uh and then when the Beatles came out, I, freak, I freaked out. And my sophomore year of, of high school, I just went, okay, well, no, I have to be, I want to be, I want to sing. And so I quit playing sports, and I, I joined, uh, we, had a, we had a vocal group in school and we had a, this uh, amazing guy, I, I, I'll never be able to thank And he's not with us anymore, but his name was Joe Esley. Okay. And Joe Esley was the director of the theater arts department. uh uh-huh. And he, would, he was the guy who directed all the plays. We would do two or three plays every year, mostly, you know, Broadway musicals. I did, you know, Little Abner and Cyrano and Oklahoma and Camelot and Music Man and Most Happy Fella and, you know, every year we did three or four plays Usually one drama and three musicals, mm-hmm. and he—the guy was just brilliant. And he just, you know, he, he. We we also had like a vocal group of with about thirty or forty kids just doing, you know, like Handel's Messiah yeah. and really complicated vocal stuff that you know, Baroque to Bach and all right. this. It really intricate uh, four part vocal choral stuff, and uh, and Joe he was you know he was on me all the time he never <laughs> let me slide ever yeah, yeah. and i, I once one time i walked into his office and i said you know mr Esley, what, why are you always on me well i mean all, you're always on my case and he goes because and, he, and i'll never forget it he sat down and he said you know you have got something you've got something special and i don't ever i don't see this a lot in people and that's why he said, you have got something special and I don't want you to let it slide. I don't want you to just, you know, slough it off. And that's why I'm on you because, you know, you've got something in there and you've got to develop it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he would always give me the, you know, the, the lead in the in the the, the tenor lead in whatever yeah. piece we were doing. Or Interesting. He hired, he, he cast me as Little Abner. And little Abner, the play Little Abner. Yeah, right. Abner's supposed to be this big, muscly guy, right? <laughs> sure, right. <laughs> and big, you know, a muscle bound bonehead. And uh, and I was, I was, you know, I was lucky to be ninety pounds. I was a little skinny <laughs> guy. And I hadn't really grown yet. And uh, and I and, he, and I was just I just went, well, you're casting me as Little Abner, and he goes, yeah. And I said, well. Am I going to wear like a big muscle suit or something? So I at he goes, no, you're just going to think big. You're going to think strong. And I yeah. went, okay,
1: yeah,
2: okay, whatever you say. And uh, so he really changed. He changed it all for me. He changed yeah. my life. He gave me that that joy. And I still do. You know, you you mentioned acting before. I still uh, I still act uh, and have been. I've been working in a theater for about. I don't know, fifteen years. It's yeah. uh, the oldest summer stock theater in the United States. Hmm. Uh, it's called the Barn Theater, okay, and right. it's uh, a summer stock theater in uh, Augusta, Michigan. Right, right. Which, which is like Kalamazoo, pretty much. Sure. But, uh, I've I've been working there. I, I do Rocky Horror. I do Frankfurter and Rocky Horror there, and I've done a number of other plays. I did last thing I did was. Uh, I did Spamalot. I did King yeah. Arthur in Spamalot, which is the, just the greatest, the greatest musical ever written. I think Eric Idle is a
0: genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had a, I just had a quick uh, note about you know you're playing Frankenfurter, um in that Rocky Horror. I, I, I can't imagine anybody better to play that really? than, than you.
2: It I mean, was really fun. Boy, it's really <laughs> fun. It is really fun. Yeah, I I enjoy it like crazy. And uh, but I have to say it's. It's a very hard play to do. It's very hard because, you know, there's all the audience
1: response. Oh, sure. You know,
2: everybody, (laughs) you know, Brad Major's asshole. Right. A a response. Right. Almost every line that's spoken from the stage. Yeah. And what ends up happening a lot, which just drives me crazy, is that the people that everybody is vying you know there's four or five people in the audience who are trying to get that line out (laughs) and they walk on they step on you Uh, you know before I even get finished saying Brad Majors they're screaming asshole. and you know And I'm Brad, but asshole! And i just, okay, God. Okay! Just,
1: you
2: know, and after a while, it just becomes so frustrating, because they just won't let you say your line. They've got to jump in with their part before the other guy does. They
0: love so, it. I'm just curious, how did you ever get involved with that theater there in Michigan? Yeah, really.
2: Well, the way it happened was, which is very weird, uh, well, first of all, the director, the the son, the guy who started it was... His name was Ragazzi, and his son, Brandon, he he, he ran it for years. He was an old Hollywood actor from the 40s, and he went back to his hometown, and he opened a little theater, he and his wife. And then as he got older, his son, Brandon, took over directing the theater. Well, Brandon went to San Jose State University. And right around the the heyday of the Tubes, right around early 80s, I think he graduated in 82. So the Tubes were a huge deal in, you know, all of the Bay Area back then. And we played San Jose a a dozen times. So he was a Tubes fan,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, Uh, he was a
2: Tubes fan. So what happened was I was at a dog park walking my dogs, right? And a guy came up to me and uh, recognized me, and he was a cameraman from Michigan, from Kalamazoo, Michigan. So he, 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 you know, we we walked with our dogs together, and he said, "Hey, and he was a Tubes fan." So the next day, I saw him again because of you know you got to take your dog to the park every day. Right. So <laughs> I saw him the next day, and his name was Philip, and uh, he goes, "You know what? I called my friend. He had a friend named Jim, for also from Kalamazoo, and Jim was the guy that did the sound." for the theater, for Bar- the barn Theater. Uh-huh. And he told Jim, hey, I met Fee Waybill at the dog park. And Jim said, oh my God, just the other day we were talking with Brandon, the director, about, you know, apparently they had done Rocky Horror a number of times over the years. And the guy who had done it before me was fat. He had gotten so fat that he couldn't <laughs> get the bustier on. <laughs>
1: and
2: so, the Jim so guy... You know, when he when he talked to my friend Philip, he goes, you know, I was just talking to Brandon, and and he mentioned Fee Waybill, and he, you know, as as a replacement because he was a Tubes fan, you know, oh Fee would have been great to do Rocky Horror. <laughs> of course, he didn't <laughs> reach me then. This was ninety eight, uh-huh. I think. Yeah, and so there wasn't, you know, you couldn't Google me and find out <laughs> how to reach me yet. Right, so, right. Uh, so the guy called Philip back. And said, Brandon wants Fee to call him. He wants him to do Rocky Horror. And this was like March of 98, I think. And so, and I just kind of went, really? That'd be so great. And I actually saw the original with, uh, with Tim Curry. Before the movie, I saw the original play here in L.A. at the Roxy Theater. Okay, that, uh, With Tim Curry playing Frankenfurter. And, uh, and I thought it was great. And I loved it. and Loved the music. and mm-hmm. Uh, so he said, you know, Phillips says, here's Brandon's number, call him. So I called the guy up, and he told me, you know, I saw you guys a million times. I went to San Jose State. I think you'd be great. I want you to do Rocky Horror. I said, really? You don't want me? No, just do it. You've got it. You've got it. I'm going to send you the script. I'm going to send you the CD, learn the songs, and then come out and do it. Mm-hmm. That And we. it was that like August, wow. that they always kind of close the season doing it, and uh, so I did, so then I started doing it like every other year, I would go do Rocky, and then I did some other stuff, I did a play called The Civil War, Frank Wildhorn play, and, uh, you know, some other stuff, and then I, the last time I was there was a couple years ago, and I did back-to-back, I did Rocky Horror, and then Spamalot, now I want to really go to Broadway, and really do the real thing, instead of... Yeah. The little, the little summer. It, it's a nice little theater. It's a, it's a milk barn. It's a, it's a Quonset Hut milk barn that wow. they've turned into a theater, and it's ancient. It was there like from the 20s or something. And it's about a 700-seater, and uh, it's a nice little theater that everybody in the local area, you know, they have Lansing and Kalamazoo yeah. and uh, all these Grand Rapids, or a number sure. of cities around yeah. that area that support the theater. So.
0: Very cool. Well, you've mentioned tubes a couple of times, and I want to dive into the tubes real quick. And you know, let's go way back to that debut album because that was pretty amazing. It was it was very progressive. It, it explored different you know time signatures and incorporated elements of jazz and rock, and even even sort of an orchestral approach mm-hmm. at times. And, and the lyrics contained you know elements of sex and social commentary, and satire, and and you know when you combine the music uh, with your live shows, it was sort of a you know, in my mind, sort of a mixture of Zappa and Alice Cooper. And, you uh, right. know, the first track on the album, Up From the Deep, is just an incredible display of musicianship. I, you know, dropping the needle on that very first Tubes album, you know, it just, that that's what that's what grabbed you as a musicianship. And I remember when I, I heard it for the first time, and I was pretty young, I had that kind of holy crap moment. You know, it just blew my fragile little mind.
3: <laughs> <laughs> messed you up after sin, after that.
0: <laughs> and of course uh, the, the track on there that's still kind of a cult classic. Of course, is White Punks on Dope, and it's a song that's you know a staple of your live shows. But the song was the song was kind of misconstrued as being sort of a, a pro drug song, where in fact it's it's very satirical and it's a lot and it's a nod towards that social you know, commentary. It's, and
2: it's completely anti drug, but of course no, nobody ever got it. It's yeah, like, yeah. You know they they went oh yeah oh yeah white punch on dope yeah okay let's like let's let's get high but no it was actually it was written about uh we were uh in San Francisco we had like this cult following of these young rich kids you know San Francisco right. very very uh very old money and a number of these kids were old old big money families and they were all wealthy and they all had BMWs and, you know, they thought it was really cool to be fans of the weirdest band in town, you know, and they, you know, they didn't go to Grateful Dead shows. They went to tube shows and we were always, you know, had, you know, back in those days we had, you know, we used to do topless girls and, you know, we used to, I used to do Tom's Tom Jones and the, and the Tom Jones dancers were the strippers. So they were all topless and, uh, you know and so they loved that, and so they used to hang around yeah. and they used to bring us drugs, and you know they get completely hammered and pass out, and we' have to you know so they, white Punk's on dope was kind of a song kind of an anthem to these yeah. this group of, of young of young <laughs> uh, rich kids, right and uh, you know I'm not, I'm not I'm quite a few of them actually. Are not are not with us anymore. They didn't make it. They OD'd, or wow. crashed their car, or they committed suicide. Or I can't tell you how many of them are gone. Wow. You know, who never made wow. it to Jeez.
1: forty, and Jeez, uh, they
2: amazing. were just. They were just completely over the top. Mm. And, you,
3: know, uh, you know, you you know, Fee, um, you know, you mentioned that you know you you grew up singing, but you, you you grew to love it also. But knowing that you grew up with a passion for writing too, that we've noticed that uh, on a few of the albums you had very few songwriting credits on them. So you know, the question is, you know, when when was it that you became more involved in the actual you know penning and the the development right. of the songs? Well,
2: I, the first, yeah, the first, I, I wasn't I wasn't writing lyrics. Uh, uh, on the on the first couple of records, I didn't really write anything on the first two records, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then on the on the live album, uh, I wrote uh, a couple of songs on the third one on the live or not now the third one was now. I had a couple on there, and then the, but right around the third the the live album, the fourth one, I started wanting to write, and uh, and then I wrote most of all the lyrics on Remote Control, and uh, and that whole concept was back then, you know, we were still a bunch of hippies and it didn't matter, we would we'd we'd split everything seven ways. We put all this, you know, everybody's name on everybody's on every song, even though you didn't have anything to do with it, you still, you know, you know. You're we but then we kind of kind of got past that and we kind of went, you know, this guy had never wrote a note in his life, I'm not giving him my my share, you know. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. But remote control was kind of a concept that I uh, to be honest with you i plagiarized from a book i read this book called being there oh yeah like jersey kosinski and uh and no and, and jersey kosinski had uh, had had a couple of hits Painted Bird was one of his books, and but this one wasn't a big hit. Nobody really knew of it, mm-hmm. and uh, but it was the story of the kid who grew up watching TV, who never went outdoors, yeah. who was like a you know the the kid of a rich family who didn't want to deal with him, and they just sit him down in front of the TV, and just that was his babysitter, and uh, and so I kind of. Came, I wanted to do that. That was the concept of remote control. And I figured, well, nobody will ever figure out where this came from. And yeah. I kind of modified it a lot, you know, more on the more of a kind of a rock and roll kind mm-hmm, of kid mm-hmm. rather than, you know, some rich kids i rich, you know, child of a rich family. Yeah. So then, then they make a movie out of it. You know, the <laughs> Peter Sellers movie. Right. They make a movie called Being There. So right. now the whole world knows the story. You know. <laughs> and, uh, although, to be honest, we never. Nobody really ever came back and went, "Hey, boy, you guys ripped this off completely. Right. This uh-huh. this is not original. You ripped this off." And yeah. And uh, but but we would. You know, I wrote most of the lyrics on that record. We would sit right. there. And the great thing about that record was we had no money and no time. Right. And we had, you know, we, we worked in this crappy little studio that was about halfway built. <laughs> and we had one month to do the whole thing. We had nothing. Oh my gosh. We had no songs. We had nothing. All, uh. all we had was this. I, I had, like, written this treatise out on, like, you know, 20-page written by hand thing of this story right and so we would sit there every day we'd sit there all together and we'd talk about it and uh you know talk with todd and the whole band and we all sat there and we like okay well so what's so how do we start here it's about the kid who watches tv well what's the first thing you do uh well turn turn it on turn <laughs> me on right you know <laughs> And so we, every day, we would sit there and we'd come up with a title, and then I'd start working on lyrics, and they'd start working on music, wow. and, and then kind of by the end of the day, we're in there recording. Anyway,
3: so the first few albums they garnered you a, a a pretty decent you know steady following, but you didn't have a you know a solid hit on your hands. So we think it was it was around your fourth album. You was with A and M, uh, which was 1979's Remote Control, and yeah. and that was uh, produced by Todd Rundgren. So A and M dropped the tubes at that time. What was going through your mind when that happened? I mean, did you think that it was going to be over at that time, or you know?
2: Well. What? Yeah, we did. We actually did another. Re- that was uh, remote control. Was the fifth album? Okay. There was, okay. Yeah. It was the right. Tubes, young and rich. Now the live album. And live. Alive, and then right. the remote control, remote control album. Yep. And so they said, we told them we want to produce it ourselves. Okay. And so they said okay, and uh, so we went to San Francisco and uh, we produced we started this record, we call it the Black Album, because the record company hated it. And it <laughs> they hated it, and it was all, it was kind of negative, it was yeah. kind of, a, a lot of songs started with don't.
1: It was like,
2: <laughs> don't slow down, don't mm. ask me, yeah. don't, I don't know, whatever. Don't, and so, uh,
1: we just we don't. We gave them the don't. album,
2: and they said, "We well, we hate it, we really hate this, um. and, uh uh, uh, we're going to release you. <laughs> and we just went, Oh, great!
1: And you guys said, and, "Don't, uh, don't!" <laughs> so they released
2: us, and uh, and and we, you know, we had, like you said, we had never sold a lot of records. We didn't. We had never had a hit. I mean, White Punks on Dope was a a cult hit, but it wasn't making them any money. Yeah. And, uh So uh, we we had a management company, and you know, we looked around for record labels, and pretty much everybody turned us down. And uh, this guy from Capitol Records, his name was Bobby Columbi.
1: Right. And Bobby sure. Columbi
2: was the drummer, from, the ex-drummer of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Right. 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 And Bobby said these, you know, he was a fan. And he said, these guys are really good. I know that they can produce something that, that you know, can get on the radio. And uh, so we got the Capitol Records gave us a deal and they and they gave us a three record deal but they said it's each of them is an option okay it's a one record deal if this if the first record sucks then you're done and uh you don't get to do a or but if the first record's good then you can do a second one and then et cetera. Et cetera. and so bobby you know we 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 looked at a number of producers and uh we didn't really you know we kept going through guys and Gosh, we turned down Jeff Baxter. Hard to believe at this Whoa. point. But uh, every, you know, we we looked at five or six guys, and then all of a sudden David Foster shows up. And Foster was, he had just, he had never done a rock and roll record in his life. He had just come from doing Boogie Wonderland
1: mm-hmm. with Earth,
2: Wind, and Fire. Okay. And, all right. uh, and had just had a huge hit with After the Love is Gone. Okay. And he came up, and we played him our songs, and... Uh, you know, and the guy is, I mean, I have to say the guy is brilliant. He's a brilliant, brilliant arranger. Yeah. And, we, you know, we like played him Amnesia, and he kind of went, wow, this is a great song, but it doesn't pay off. It's The ending sucks. <laughs> and then, he, you know, and he would sit down and go, okay, well, how if you do this and this and this, and then you modulate over here, and then blah, 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 and you do a big chorus repeat at the end, and, then, and we all just kind of went, oh, fuck, that's awesome. You know, and he just... <laughs> just like in 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 a heartbeat he turned these these (laughs) wacky songs into payoffs you know and he did the same with uh don't want to wait anymore and he did you know and and so it just all of a sudden david foster changed the world for us and uh we wrote talk to you later and and as you as you mentioned earlier steve you know Foz, you know we 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 got near the the completion of the of the record and uh he goes, you know, you, do, you don't have a, you, you have this, everybody wanted big ballads back then. So we had, you know, Journey and REO and all these bands that had mm-hmm. big hits with big power ballads. And he goes, but we had one of those. We had Don't Want to Wait Anymore. Right. And uh, he said, you don't have a rock song. He said, you need a song for the rock charts. And, you know, the band, we had a couple more songs. We played him and he kind of went, no, no, these are not this is not cool. These don't cut it. And, uh. So he what he suggested he goes you know I have a friend and I didn't uh I didn't know Steve at the time. He goes I got a friend who does uh who does a lot of our uh, session work in LA. You know, he's a guitar player from Toto and we went oh yeah, okay, I uh, you know, I, we know them. We know their band. We didn't know them. He you know, he said why don't you and I and Steve go to the studio early one morning, you know, on a day when the band isn't booked in until later on and let's see if we can write a song. Mm-hmm. And uh I went okay, and so Dave and Steve and I showed up early one morning at the at Record One where we, we were recording. Yeah. The band wasn't the band wasn't due to come in until like four or something. You know, we'd work like four to midnight or something. Yeah, and uh, and so we wrote "Talk to You Later." I mean, Steve came up with a lick in like ten seconds. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, the, the guy is brilliant. And so you know, we wrote "Talk to You Later." We you know we put it down. Uh, we had, we called the drummer, we had him come in early, we put down a track with the drummer, and Steve played the bass, he played the rhythm, he played the lead, <laughs> he played everything. And Foz played key, uh, the keyboards, and yeah. we had this track, and, and then I wrote the lyrics, we didn't have a vocal on it, but I sat down and wrote the lyrics that afternoon in like a couple of hours, mm-hmm. and uh, and then the band came in, and we went, well, check this out. You know, <laughs> we, we have this kind of rough rough mix of a song we wrote. Yeah. And uh, we played them Talk to You Later, and, you know, they they flipped out. They went, wow, this is really great. You know, on the one hand, they went, wow, this is really great. And on the other hand, they went, wow, you dickheads, you didn't call me. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I was
0: wondering about that, yeah. Yeah, they
2: weren't all that happy. and uh, But then we played it for the manager guy, and he loved it. And then we played it for the record company, and they went, yeah. oh, my God. this!" Is, and then so, you know, Talk to You Later was, like, number one on the rock charts. And, yeah. It was like number one in seventeen countries.
1: Or yeah. Something yeah.
2: And uh, they loved it, and so the record company said, "Okay, well, you can do another record." And so we did the second record with Foz, mm-hmm. uh, outside and inside, and we did the same thing again. We 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 met Dave and and Steve and I, and we wrote the same things. Wrote she's a beauty, early one morning before the band showed up.
1: Yeah. And, <laughs> again. Uh,
2: <laughs> And so that, you know, that became an even bigger hit. Yeah. You know, that went to whatever, number two or something. I and mean, that yeah. was the biggest record we ever had. And now, right. it's, you know, it changed. I mean, the the gigs went from, you know, 5,000 to 25,000. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, it just it just upped the whole,
1: the, uh, up the ante all the way across. Exactly, but, sure.
0: It, you know, knowing that we were going to interview you today, I, I was, uh, yesterday I was explaining to my son who you were and the tubes and he said he's 13 and he said uh, his name's Holden and he said he said dad let me hear one other song so I played she's a beauty and he he's hooked all last night <laughs> he wanted to hear it he wanted to see the video this morning on the way to school we had to repeat it on loop about four or five times before <laughs> we got to school and then he actually said he, he knows that we do these interviews and he said hey dad can you ask fee a question for him and I said of course and he said who you're writing the song she's a beauty about what did you have somebody specifically in mind?
2: Well, I don't know if you want to tell your son this. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. <laughs> inspiration for She's a Beauty was. In San Francisco, they're, they're the Red Light District, yeah. where all the hookers were, is right, right. called the Tenderloin. Okay. okay. <laughs> and it's kind of this seedy area of kind of near downtown San Francisco. And, uh, and we, there's a club near there. There's a club called the Great American Music Hall. And it's right in this area. In fact, it's next door to a porno theater, okay. Mitchell Brothers Porno Theater, right, okay. which has also been there a hundred years. Yeah. And uh, so we were playing there once at this club, and I was wa- And I waiting. You know, I was. It was sound check, and you know, I, I don't do dick at sound check. They, they get every all their gear set up, and then you know, vocals are the last thing you do. Right. And so I was walking around town, and in front of this massage parlor which was down the street there was this kiosk there was a little it's like a little phone booth okay and with, with solid walls okay and it says pay a dollar talk to a naked girl okay okay, right. okay. pay a dollar talk to a naked there girl you go. and you put a dollar in the slot and the the wall goes down and there is a girl in there and okay. she's got right. like negligee on mm-hmm. right and so she starts you know, she starts trying to talk you into going into this massage parlor, which is obviously your, you know, full-release massage right.
1: parlor. <laughs>
2: and she's, you know, really, really good-looking, and and it's not like some skanky girl, you know. It's this really good-looking young girl, and I'm like, you know, I put the dollar in, you know, I want to, I'd never seen this before, and I was, you know. And she starts going off on this, you know, Hey, baby, how's it going? Come in and yeah. have a massage, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just going... Wow! I said, "What the hell?" I said, "Why are you doing this? You're gorgeous. You could be a model. Why are you doing this? This is insane!" And you know, and I was, I practically off, you know, asked her to be a tubes dancer, you know, and uh, <laughs> she never broke out of the. Of the act, wow! You know, didn't, it it wouldn't just. I said, "Hey, what's your name?" And she just go, "You didn't even know my name, baby. You just need to come in for a massage and we'll I'll take care of you." And blah 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 blah. Right. And then you know, and and she pretend like she'd start taking her clothes off, but she wasn't really. And uh, so that was the inspiration for she's a beauty. And in the line, you can you can talk to a pretty girl. You know, she's a, you can talk to a pretty girl. Right, well, right. It, originally. The lyrics were naked girl. You can okay. talk to a naked girl. <laughs> and the foster made me change it. Yeah. He says, You can't say, you can't know. This is too much. This is too obvious, okay? You can't say naked girl. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you gotta, so we changed it to pretty girl. Okay. And, uh, but that the song is about a hooker, pretty yeah. much.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know how I'm going to break this to my son.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't know either, but, <laughs> but that's the truth of it all. It's, it's, uh, one in a Million Girls, yeah, yeah, that yeah, was the one.
0: Well, going back to Steve Lukather, you know, I know you two guys have a, a fantastic relationship, not only from a, a writing perspective, but, you know, you're good buds. And I, and according to Luke, I know you guys literally have the same brand of humor.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, God,
0: yes.
2: yeah. And I've written a bunch of songs for him over the years. Right. A, a couple for Toto, a few yeah. for Toto, but mostly for, for his solo records his Los Lobotomies you know solo songs
1: yeah I
0: think you wrote didn't you write Creep Motel on his uh, yeah 2002- I wrote Creep Motel yeah
2: that's Flash right Flash in the Pan Creep Motel Hero with a Thousand Eyes on the, on the Candyman oh, yeah, record yeah, yeah. I wrote like seven or eight songs
0: yeah that's a fantastic album yeah. yeah, You know, tell us about just, you know, since you guys have written so much together, tell us about writing with him. I mean, when you guys get together, is it, I'm assuming it's a, a pretty easy process and, and you know, yeah, what?
2: it's usually pretty well, you know, it, it, it's happened a number of different ways. I mean, uh, like the, like the ways as I told you before, with Dan. Yeah. but sometimes I just go over to his house. I used to live right down the road from him. He lives up in up in the mountains in the Hollywood Hills, yep. and I used to live down at the other end. I used to live a couple of miles from him right down the hill, Okay, and uh, so sometimes I would go to his house, and we'd just sit around and talk and work and stuff, and, you know, he'd play his guitar, and we'd talk about stuff and talk about ideas for lyrics and stuff, And uh, but then sometimes, you know, he'll just send me, a, you know, send me a track that he's that he's work uh, if he's in in the studio or something working on a record, you know, he'll say he goes I'm stuck here, I don't, you know, this I think this is a track you should write or I don't I don't have a chorus for this track, I need you to help me with this or mostly it's it's very easy. I mean, the guy is a brilliant brilliant yeah. guitar player and he's so fast, you know, and he's so, you know, he comes up with stuff so quickly, you know. And uh, and I usually bring, like, you know, some kind of recording device with me, so
1: yeah.
2: I'm not nearly as quick as he is with lyrics coming out of my head like mm-hmm. he is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Uh, I mean, he can write a, he can write a, a song uh, in chord progression and, you know, bridge, and, I mean, it, you know, in, in half an hour, it's done, <laughs> it's on the record, and wow. I'm kind of going, oh, Jesus. And it kind of takes me a while. I need to listen to the track for, you know, 50, 100 times, and I kind of figure out you know is it happy is it sad is it sarcastic is it truth is it what is it you know usually when i write with luke he just sends me the track and i end up writing the melody line as well as the lyrics right, right. and but i i've written even more songs my my best friend in the world is richard marks
1: which is right. kind of
2: weird you know because it's you couldn't be more different <laughs> musically right. but uh i met richard uh In the studio with David Foster, he was—he came into the studio, and he had come out to LA. Was just a kid, and he wanted to meet. He had placed a song on a Lionel Richie album, and and Lionel said, and he told Lionel Richie he wanted to meet Foz, and and Foz said, and he and Lionel said, well, Foz is in with the Tubes right now. Why don't you go over? He's at share Studio. Go over and tell him I sent you, and you know you can hang out. And so he did. Richard came over unannounced and sat in the back of the studio. And it was one of those days where the guitar player was really hungover, Bill, was really hungover, too many, too many drugs, too much alcohol the night before, and he was having a real hard time. And he, you know, Foster is very, very demanding. I mean, he, you know, he, it's got to be perfect. You know, it's not like recording with Todd, where right. it's not perfect... Todd will put 15 tracks on top of the not perfect track. You can't tell, <laughs> yeah. and which I'm really not a fan of that style of production. But Foz won't let you do that. Foz, you, it has to be right. You yeah. cannot, you cannot leave it un, you know, fucked up. Right. So we were having a hard time with it, and Bill was too wasted, and he couldn't play, and he couldn't get the part right. And Foster said his amp sounded like a washing machine, <laughs> and he said, and so he was pissed off. And so we're listening to some playback in the, in the, in the control room. And, uh, and Bill turns around and sees Richard sitting back there in the shadow. And he goes, who the fuck is this? What the fuck? What the fucking? And he just goes off. You know, what the fuck? Who is this guy sitting back in the You know, get this fucking guy out of here. And, and, uh, and I was there, and I just kind of went, dude, you know, just, just go play your fucking part. He's a kid, he's a friend of Foster's, okay? He's just a young kid from Chicago. Leave him alone. Just go oh do gosh. your thing. Wow. You know, don't don't give him and so after the session, Richard kinda came up to me and said, Geez, thanks a lot, man. You know, that's really cool. And I was getting worried. I thought it was gonna hit me or something, and I said, Nah, no, nah, you're cool, man, no problem. And he and Richard said, you know, would you write a song with me? I like I like your lyrics. Would you write a song with me? And I just kinda went, Well, okay uh okay what, the, what i'll I'll write a song with you. what the hell, yeah. and so we wrote a song, our first song was "Who loves Your Baby?" which was what Telly Savalas, yeah co that's used right say, I remember the right? Answer, baby. Who loves that's your right. baby and uh that was the first song Richard and I wrote, and wow. it was on you know my solo record and one of them and uh so we just became friends and yeah. uh, and we you know we wrote songs for other people, we wrote a big hit for this vixen remember vixen that band girl band oh uh, yeah
1: yeah That's edge right.
2: of a broken heart was yeah. a big hit which richard and i wrote and oh, very cool. so we started writing band songs for other people and then around uh 89 80, 89 something richard said yeah, you know i want to i think i want to be a an, not just a songwriter i want to be an artist and so he got a deal uh also at Capitol. strangely enough and uh and uh started writing, you know, his first record, you know, I had like four songs on his first record. He's, you know, sold a million, well, I don't know, three million yeah. or oh, something yeah. on his, Huge. He sold more records on his first <laughs> release than we had in ten records before, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: And uh and so I went, Yeah, that's pretty cool. And so, you know, ever since we've we've written together and and over and over and over we've written a million songs together. And Very cool. and the funny thing is that when when I write, which is all leading up to when I write with him, he'll send me a track. He'll have a la la melody, you know. Right, he'll right. put la 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 la, and and he'll have rhyming ends. And and somehow, I don't know what it is, but somehow when he does this, I can hear the lyrics in the la la's. Really, I can hear what it's supposed to be. Wow. You know, a lot of times he'll have a title, and that's all or he'll have the first line of a chorus, and that's all. And then I'll just start listening to it, and then all of a sudden, out of this, this, this la-la bullshit that's not saying anything, <laughs> I'll hear it. I'll hear the words. Right. It's right. really weird. It's really weird. And the other thing was uh, that, uh, that I learned a lot was one day uh, I was in a studio, and the guy that was in the studio before us was Brian Ferry. Okay. okay. All right. And Brian Ferry was doing something very similar and and all he was doing was figuring out the last word of a phrase. Okay. And so they they showed me this sheet of paper that he had left behind, you know, and it was just blah 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 e blah 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 o blah 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 and so you know, based on you know, he, he was just figuring out what vowel sound to sing. Interesting. Right? Right. Based on the line, the melody line, is it? Did it end on a really high note? You know, on a really high note, you're not going to sing a vowel sound with your mouth closed, right. like mm-hmm. e right. on a high note. You know, you want something open, ah or o oh or you know. That where you can where you can make Mm -hmm. that note work. Yeah, yeah.
3: uh, that makes sense.
2: And I just thought, God, that's so fucking brilliant. This guy is so great, you know, and that kind of sucked that in and kind of thought, (laughs) well, wow, this is definitely a factor in in writing lyrics. And and what what kind of vowel sound or word to end phrases on. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: That's Uh, interesting. Hey, Fee, I've got a question. You know, we have several correspondents throughout the country and in Europe, and our Chicago correspondents, his name is uh, Brian Pearson, he has a question regarding the album um, Outside Inside. And uh, he wanted to ask you about uh, Maurice White's involvement on Tip ah. of My Tongue. You know, oh he, was, he was wondering about that song, how it came about, and how you might have first connected with Maurice.
2: Well, this is, this is a good story. This is really good. Well, first of all, obviously, Foz... Knew Maurice yeah, White because sure. he had just done Boogie Wonderland, right, right? Right, and so we were in a studio in doing Outside Inside in Los Angeles, a place called the Complex. And down the hall was Earth Wind and Fire, <laughs> and they were doing a record,
1: right? Okay, yep.
2: and we had this song Tip of My Tongue, right? And we all we had was the lyrics for the verse, right? And we didn't have a chorus, and we didn't have a melody, and we didn't have words for the chorus. We didn't have, you know, and, and a, lot, a lot of the lyrics were written by Prairie, our drummer. And, you know, the, the beginning of the second verse is, Never been too cunning, I'm no linguist. Right, right. As in cunning linguist.
1: Right. <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> and Foz. We were there and we didn't know what to do. And Foz, really, you know, you know what, you know, you know who's really great with melodies is Maurice, and he's mm-hmm. right down the hall. Yep. He says, well, "Why don't we get him over here and see if he can help us with us?" But Maurice is very religious. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we can't play him any of the lyrics that we've got. <laughs> okay. We can't because if he hears a cunning linguist, it, it's over.
1: Okay. Yeah,
2: right. It's going to be over. So. We've got him down there, and that, and we we never played the verses. We just we said we got a chorus, you know. We don't, you know. And it's a kind of a love song about a guy who who can't get out the words "I love you." Okay. And Maurice, like instantly went, well, you know, my heart speaks, but the words stay on the tip of my tongue. And we go, "Whoa, you're kidding?" <laughs> okay and no matter what my lips say you're still the only one. I I think I wrote that I can't. Anyway, we, and then we had Maurice and we went, "Oh my god, Maurice." And so so he sang a melody for us and wow. then all the ad-libs on the record are Maurice, you know, after yeah, yeah. the the oohs and the, you know, woo right. woo 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 all those parts that's Maurice singing. And cuz we kept it and we asked him, "Can we keep these on the record?" He goes, "Yeah, oh, yeah, no problem." And uh and you know, obviously it's us singing the, right. the the choral the the actual chorus, but all the ad libs are Maurice and so it was so and, and we never we never told him. You know, we never played him the actual lyrics you of the song. I was gonna ask, version.
0: you you don't you don't think he ever heard the song?
2: Well I don't know. I never you know, I actually after that I never I never spoke to him again. Oh about, really? Did you ever figure out that the oh. the song is about you yeah. know fellatio I didn't, <laughs> never, I never asked him that and you know I guess I'm going to have to wait to ask him that yeah. so <laughs> I can right. kick you oh, know right. but uh, but yeah he was a sweetheart he was such a cool guy and you know it was such a trick you know and he was he was, way, he was right down with it right down with it all the way yeah
0: Keeping with the topic of writing, I read that back in the day, you know, and you mentioned it a little while ago, that smoking pot was was something that helped you write your best material. You know, you I've, I've seen something where you said it cleared your mind from all the distractions and enabled you to access, you know, more of the right side of the brain. And obviously, you don't smoke pot anymore, but, but I also wondered if, if creative writing is still an integral part of your life. But then I understand you recently wrote a book of poetry.
2: Yes, I did. I'm writing... Yeah. I wrote well. Actually, yeah, I did. A, I don't know, a year or so ago, I wrote a book of poetry, and uh, actually, I wrote it. I wrote it late at night on, on alcohol, drunk. <laughs> so I, I, uh, and I wrote it. You know, I was a couple of summers ago, you know, and I had broken up. My my, I married. A, I married this woman that I met in the jungles of Guatemala on a solar eclipse.
1: Wow, it
2: was so cosmic. My my friend and I, who is a, I'm a Mayanist, I love the Mayan culture, and my friend and I went to Belize to look at Mayan ruins, and we had planned the trip to culminate on a solar eclipse, which was July 11th, 1991, okay? And my friend and I were there for that day. At the time, the biggest Mayan ruin discovered, it was a place called Tikal in Guatemala, Tikal. And, uh, so Rick and I are there and we're hanging out, you know, in the, early in the day and we're waiting for the solar eclipse and, and this couple walks out of the jungle and it's this young guy and this gorgeous looking brunette woman and the guy walks right up to me and goes, you're Fiway Bill from the tubes. <laughs> and I went, what? Well, yes, I am. <laughs> i am been in Guatemala, okay, dude? Give yeah. me a break, you know? <laughs> and he, and he, was a, he was a guy named Randy, and he was a high school teacher from Santa Monica, and he was a big Tubes fan. Cool. And he goes, oh, hi, this is, you know, God, that's so cool, and, you know, so they kind of, he was with this girl named Elizabeth, and, and I just immediately just kind of went, oh, my God, this girl is fucking stunning. I can't believe it. And I was just smitten instantly. And so it was funny, he had a video He had a big, you know, fuck, in 91, the video camera was as big as a house, you know? (laughs) It was huge. So he was taking video, and we walked around to all the different monuments, and we were looking at everything, and every chance I got, I kind of, like, you know, I kind of st- started hitting on his girlfriends, <laughs> And, you know, <laughs> we would be like around the corner from That's them, and gosh. I'd start talking, hey, what's happening? How's it going? Where do yeah. you live? And well, what's your name? And where do you, what's your story? You know, and then he'd become, and then he'd come walking around the corner with a video and bust us, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was really funny. And so we spent the day together. It turns out right before the solar eclipse at 3, a, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there's a gigantic monsoon rainstorm, wow. right? The whole cloud, well, sky turns black, opens up, pours down rain, and the whole eclipse comes and goes. We never even saw it because <laughs> it was so pouring rain. And, uh, and then at the end of the day, you know, we, my friend and I went, were going east back to Belize, and they were, Randy and Elizabeth were heading north, Back to LA, and so I just kind of went, okay. Well, uh, you know, and I I was I was already thinking, how am I gonna am I gonna meet this girl again, you know? And uh, because I lived in in LA too, and uh, and I said, well, you know, I'd love to get a copy of this videotape of today. It's so great. And he goes, oh, okay, yeah, And he was, you know, clueless. He said, (laughs) yeah. He goes, well, just call me up. He gave me his number. He's call me up when you get back to town. I'll make you a copy. And I said, "Oh, okay." And so they went. We we went our separate ways. We went back to L.A. And when I got back to L.A., I called him up and I said, "Can I get a copy?" And he goes, "Oh, yeah, no problem." And uh, I said, "Oh, by the way, how are you? How are you and Elizabeth doing?" And he goes, "Oh, nothing." And he wouldn't. He wouldn't say anything. You
1: wouldn't.
2: He wouldn't. I said, "You know, oh, oh, okay." Yeah. And I didn't want to say, "Are, are you, you know." can i hit on your girlfriend or i just <laughs> want to say that are you are you broken up because give me your number because i want to hit on her and <laughs> but no and i went you know that i went and picked up the tape and i asked him again i said so how's it going with elizabeth and then nothing not, not a fucking word one way and i kind of went okay well you know i was embarrassed to say you know what she dumped your ass cuz you're a cheap bastard what the fuck you know <laughs> they were traveling through mexico on a bus on a public trip, I couldn't fucking believe it. Here he's got this gorgeous woman, and he's got, a, he's got her on a $2 bus ride full of fucking chickens. <laughs> oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. And so anyway, uh, I kind of, you know, this was July of 91, and I kind of just kind of forgot about the whole thing. And and then, what, eight months later, February of 92, I'm I'm working out. I'm at the Santa Monica Athletic Club with my friend who I work, a chiropractor guy that was my workout buddy. And we're working out like we did, you know, three days a week, normal, regular. And I'd completely forgotten all about this girl. And she walks into the gym, right? And she is not even a member. She's a guest of a member and had never been there before. She walks into the gym. She sees me. She walks right over to me. And goes, hi, remember me? And I just kind of went, oh my god, you're you're Elizabeth? <laughs> yeah, I can't. And she went, yeah. And I just, wow. And I so immediately I said, well, what's, you know, what what's your what's your status? <laughs> you know, are you still with Randy? And she goes, no, I dumped that fuck immediately after we got back home, and uh, and so I got her number and we started going out, and uh, that was ninety two and ninety seven we got married. Wow. Two thousand we got divorced. <laughs> and and then years went by and about six years later, oh six, she called me up and said, My dad is retiring and he's running this business and he wants me to give me this business to commercial property management and I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to run it. I know you can do everything. My dad was a, a chief engineer. He my dad ran the first Resort Hotel in Scottsdale, Arizona. Wow. Uh, the Valley Ho. And yeah. he was the chief engineer. My dad could do everything. Anything yeah. mm-hmm. electrical, carpentry, plumbing, air conditioning, anything. Anything. He ran the whole thing. And he taught me and my brother how to do everything. So uh, my, my brother built a house all by himself from the ground up, from the dirt all the way to the fucking roof. He built it himself. <laughs> my brother's way better than me, and he still lives in Arizona. But anyway, uh, she said, you need, I need you to help me run this. I, I can't do this. And so I started helping her run the business. And, uh, and then, you know, a couple of years later, we got back together romantically, like 08, 09 or something. And that lasted for a couple of years. And then we had a big falling out, you know, over the fucking work again, which is, you know, pain in the ass. And we broke up. And then, and I was despondent. And that's when I started writing poetry. And I would sit at, you know, and we lived together for a while. I live in Venice Beach, and she lived with me here at the house in Venice for a while. And then we broke up, and she moved away. And so I was alone and, you know, getting drunk every night, and I started writing poetry. And I wrote this whole book of poetry. Every every poem was just, I'm just shit-faced, right? (laughs) And then I kind of put it together. I got a friend of mine, and we... We, we I, I drug up a bunch of old song lyrics that I had written that never got made into songs, and then I, some other stuff, and I just kind of drug up all my old lyric books from from years and years ago and kind of put together some songs, some lyrics that had never been made into songs because I didn't want to, you know, just put out a book of Tubes lyrics. And, and uh, so I wrote my book, and I called it... And every night... That's, so this goes on to the story every night, I would text her, the, the, the poet, I, all the poems were about her, every one of them, and I would text her the poem at, like, midnight when I'm, you know, about to pass out on the couch, and uh, and I did this for a whole summer, and at, by the end of the summer, she went, oh, my God, I, you know, you, you, you've won me back, yep. and so we got back together, this was, I don't know, three years ago or something. Yeah. And we got back together, and then I finished the book, and, uh, and we're still together. She was just here just now. We were, we had to go down to Orange County today to deal with some stuff. And
0: Yeah.
2: I'm, she went to yoga, and I'm going to go play polo.
0: Well, you're a man of many <laughs>
2: talents
1: as well. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I've, I've almost got my second book of poetry done. Uh, I've almost got the second book done. I've got about 25, maybe 25 poems so far that are a lot more elaborate than the first one. The first one, you know, I'd get get to, like, eight lines and go, okay, good, fine, that's good, (laughs) I'm done. I kind of, the the new book will be better. It's got more of beginning, middle, and end kind of thing. Yeah,
3: yeah. Sophie, you get to try a lot of different things. You uh, you always like new experiences. You're writing now and whatever. But do you ever get a chance to listen to new music? I mean, sit down, listen, uh, enjoy. What are you listening to right now, if that even crosses your path. Uh
2: well, actually, uh there's not a whole lot of, that I listen to. I mean, okay. I am really not into rap or hip hop or yeah. you know, there's really not for a while I was listening to the country, but that's kind of boring. I didn't like it much and uh I'm waiting for the new Foo Fighters record. I'm I'm uh, I'm Dave Grohl and I are friends and uh we actually met in a uh a vintage clothing store. I was in there looking for, uh, Tubes costumes and Dave and, and his wife, Jordan, were in, they were looking for, uh, parachute pants for an (laughs) 80s theme party they were going to. (laughs) And I saw him in there and I was a fan and I walked right up to him and I went, man, you're, you're band. you're the, you're in the best rock and roll band out there.
1: Right. And
2: he did you know, he who are you? And I told him who I was and, and he goes, oh yeah, I've heard of you and, uh, so we kind of became friends, and you know, uh, we've played with him a few times uh, wow. over the years. That's and, cool. Uh, and then on on the on the, la- on the uh, Wasted Light album, yeah, uh, he asked me to come and sing background vocals on one of the songs.
1: Really? Which yeah, one?
2: So on, on Miss, I'm singing the background vocals on Miss the Misery. Ugh. And uh, that's such a great album. Yeah, it's a great album, and uh, and the Sonic Highways record I like too, and. Uh, uh, yeah. So we've been, I you know, there. When I'm when I'm driving to fucking Hammett, Redwood, I mean, to uh, Riverside County, I'm I always listen to Foo Fighters. Yeah, you know, they're my they're they're the best. They're my favorite band. They're the best rock and roll band out there. And uh, and even when when Dave did the, uh, you know, the, them Crooked Vultures band uh-huh. with, with John Paul Jones right. and uh, Josh. I saw them about five or ten times at least, and uh, I wished like hell I would have been the lead singer for Dave's. You know, but but Josh yeah. is good, and you know they're they're that that record is so whacked, mm-hmm. it's so weird. You know, it's, there's not one song in there you can sing along with really. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I love it. I think it's a great record, and uh, so that's pretty. You know, I really don't listen to the radio that much. Mm-hmm. Radio in LA is. You know, I've heard all those classic rock songs a hundred times and a uh, thousand times. Right. So usually I'm, I'm listening to, uh, either I'm listening to sports talk <laughs> on the radio or I'm listening to some old Foo Fighters record.
0: <laughs> you know, the tubes have been going strong for, you know, over four decades. And the, and the cool part is, is that you guys still have four original members uh, in the band. Right. And, and, right. uh, and and I'm sure Quaalude is still a, p- a part of all that. We didn't really talk much about Quaalude, but
1: oh yeah,
2: we're <laughs> still, the, still there. We I still have the big shoes.
0: Yeah. Are they still? Do uh, uh, you still have the shoes that are on uh, tomato cans? No, I don't.
2: <laughs> we actually at, uh, well, there was there's been five or six seven incarnations of the Quelude shoes. Right. And uh, <laughs> one time we built a pair out of out of uh, fiberglass, and we put a, we, we made them hollow. And made little aquariums in we put water in them and little plastic fish <laughs> inside the the shoes, That's right? Great. Inside the but they weigh about, you know, fifty pounds. Oh feet, yeah. So I didn't wear those for long. Yeah. And we had ones that were made out of all cork. And we had ones that were made out of, you know, wood and all oh, I mean all kinds of things. <laughs> the ones we finally got smart and made ones out of fiberglass so yeah. they're they're lightweight and they've lasted. I still have the same pair that I had, you know, from like 85 or something. And uh, I still wear them.
1: Very they're cool.
2: Still, it, it's, the the funny part is when I take them, the zipper breaks or something, because <clears throat> they're beetle boots. The tops are beetle boots with this fiberglass bottom on them, you know, and the big heel <laughs> and everything. And the, if the zipper breaks or something breaks on them, I take them into the shoe repair guy. Oh, you know, these are my, my street shoes. Can <laughs> you fix this? And the guy looks at me like I'm in, what? <laughs> you, what?
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, knowing that you guys are are still uh, still out touring, I know you just got back from a big tour, and and uh, and you know, like I said, you've got so many original members left in the band. Have you guys ever considered? Are Are you considering at all making any new music?
1: Well,
2: uh, not really. I yeah. mean, we it might happen. Uh, you know, it's it's so everybody's everybody's got something else going. You know, right, right. everybody lives in a different city. First of all. And Roger, you know, Roger is kind of more interested in doing a solo, his solo work. Okay. He, he did a solo album. Rick lives out in the middle of nowhere. He lives out in, in, in uh, Modesto, which is way out in, you know, the middle of California yeah. on highway. I don't know. You don't know California. But yeah. it's, it's, he's 300 miles from L.A. Oh, and I know, San Francisco. I know he's where Modesto is. <laughs> and he does. He, he has a used car lot. Okay, so he likes to work on cars. So he buys these cars, you know, like he's got an old Jag and he's got an old Porsche, and he, and he fixes them up, and you know, <laughs> find tries to find parts and 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 rebuilds these ancient classic cars. Wow, and then turns them. Yeah, you yeah. know, and uh, that's cool. And so everybody's kind of got you know Prairie is constantly on the road with somebody. Yeah, it's not the tubes. He, right now he's out on the road with. Uh, with Todd Rundgren,
1: uh-huh. and
2: uh, he's going to take a day off. For, we have a gig tomorrow up in up in Northern California at a Performing Arts Center, and he's going to take a day off from that and come back and do a Tubes gig. Cool. And, uh, so, and Roger, Roger uh, used to be, uh, he used to work as a technical director for ABC. He's kind really? of a Mr. Technical guy. Interesting. And uh, he was a technical director for a news program for ABC, and... Uh, He's not doing that anymore, but now he's now he wants to be a tennis pro. <laughs> 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 so he's all day long. He's fucking playing. Say, Roger, come on, you're sixty. What? And you want to be a tennis pro for what? <laughs> for like the, the octogenarian tennis club? What? what the fuck? You know. But he's really good. He's oh, totally cool. into it and it, and keeps him in shape. And you know, so he's playing all the time. So I don't know yeah. if if there'll ever be another tubes record. I, at this point, I don't know. Of course, no. You know, no record company would actually give us any money to do it. We'd have to
0: <laughs> not anymore do it on our own. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, hey, um, Fee, this has been awesome. We appreciate all the time you've given us. Um, Absolutely, we really enjoyed it. We hope you did too, and uh, yeah, we'll look cool. for you though on the road. Hopefully, hopefully, if you guys tour again, I, I saw you once about fourteen years ago here in Indianapolis, and. Uh, uh, oh, I just totally oh. loved the show. It wasn't a very big crowd. I don't think the show was promoted very well, but you guys gave it your all. I was I was amazed. You guys played over two hours, and you went through all the costume oh, yeah. changes, and it was fabulous.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're still doing we're still doing a the new show that we just start we, we we put together a new show for uh, the Mondo Pulp Show. It's uh-huh. kind of a tribute to the pulp art movement uh-huh. of the and and also kind of also. Pulp fiction, also Quentin Tarantino is our superstar hero guy. Okay. And uh <laughs> so we're doing the Mondo Pulp tour and uh <clears throat> so we're still doing two out of, two and a half hours. Wow, you know, we're we're yeah. uh, and we're doing all kinds of weird I mean, we're doing the Chuck Berry song, uh, you never can tell from the scene in the movie where they have the twist contest.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Right? We're doing that song cool. and we're doing Monkey Time without a duet and we're doing James Brown Medley. we you know what we've done James Brown for a fucking hundred years. I love James Brown. Uh That's
1: you know, awesome. all kind
2: of, we're doing a Captain Beefheart song and we're doing uh Christ, we're doing a, well we do we always do a Beatles song. We always do our punk version of SAR standing there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh we have a every I mean, you know we we have a great time we have a we have a, a a really fun time doing the show and we don't work all that hard we don't we seldom do 50 shows a year
1: yeah. so
2: it's not like you're going out on the only time we really do an extended run is if we go to Europe and this last right, trip we right. did 22 shows and and it just about killed us all but, <laughs> and uh so you know we don't work all that hard, so we're fresh you know on every show and yep. excited and can't wait to you know get on the stage again so cool it's uh we're we're luck we're and we're and we're all healthy you know all of us you know so many of our friends have succumbed to whatever cancer and all kinds of
1: crap right. and yeah. drug
2: overdoses and everything along the way and and everybody's still real healthy that's and, awesome uh, still having fun doing it, so
0: that's important that's the key. Alright Fee uh, Don't forget to call Steve Looker there. He wants you to give him a call Exactly <laughs> Okay I'm the okay. messenger <laughs> and, and again Thanks so much We really appreciate okay, this Okay you
1: guys well, Thanks thank a lot you
0: Fee you
2: guys Okay right. I'll talk to you soon Alright All right, take bye-bye. care Bye bye Okay bye
0: Special thanks to Fee Waybill For joining us On this episode Of Inside Music Cast We'd also like to thank Our correspondents Brian Pearson Kim Riley Scott Gross Loretta Sassaman Scott Sheriff Don Brighton Yinka Oyelese, and Arnaud Legere for their support and content development. For the best in West Coast AOR, pop, jazz, and funk, tune in to Inside MusicCast Radio. Download the streaming app for Android and iOS devices, or listen at InsideMusicCast.com. Inside MusicCast is powered by Earshot Audio Post and Cabello Associates. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast and Inside MusicCast Radio.